Welcome back to the leading edge of integrative mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Please review and subscribe to the Groundless Ground podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Radio.com, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and of course, find out more at GroundlessGround.com. I'm ready to go. How about you? This episode features two Dharma talks I recently gave at Marin Sangha. The two talks explicate what kindness is from a Buddhist psychological perspective and how it radically differs from niceness. To lay the groundwork of what kindness is, the first talk employs a very challenging sutta called the simile of the saw, where the Buddha prescribes wholesome conduct in all manner of difficult relational engagements. The second talk investigates kindness and niceness and clarifies their differences. Niceness, though pleasing or agreeable, is only intended to avoid discomfort and is deceptive and disingenuous. Kindness, on the other hand, is genuine benevolence enacted through skillful application of presence and discerning wisdom. Due to its engaged and other-centered nature, kindness isn't always easy, and navigating the discomfort it can bring is the common ground of both talks. May these talks be dedicated to the benefit of all beings and our ability to engage with each other wisely and compassionately. It's so great to be back. I've been thinking a lot about the difference between niceness and kindness these days. So I've been doing a little bit of research. As you know, being a sutta hound, I always tend to kind of look to what the historical Buddha actually said. I started to write this talk and then I was looking through the Pali Canon and interestingly, in the indexes of all of Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations of the suttas, kindness is not actually listed as a word anywhere in the index, which I actually found very fascinating. And I really had to think about that. Buddhist teachers in the West are very big on kindness, you know. But actually for the historical Buddha, it was loving kindness or metta or maitreya. And that is not the same actually as kindness. And then that got me thinking about how the teachings around kindness, loving kindness, compassion have been extended into the Mahayana, into the Vajrayana, through the teachings on bodhicitta, on the bodhisattva practices, teachings that are extremely profound by amazing people like Shantideva and others. As I was looking through the Pali Canon, I found a sutta which maybe has been taught here before. You know, I always say this. I say, maybe this has been taught here before because I don't want to be hubristic about this. You have lots of amazing teachers who teach you. So maybe some of you have heard the simile of the saw. This is from the Majima Nikaya. It's number 21 for any of you who want to go in and actually read it for yourselves. It is quite long. It has a front story and it has a back story. And then there's the teaching right in the middle of it. So I am 
leaving out the front story, I'm leaving out the back story, and we're just going to focus on what the Buddha actually said. This is a very challenging sutta, very challenging for modern people because modern people have a tendency to be insistent on the primacy of their self. This particular sutta was challenging for the monks. It's even more challenging for us. I'm actually going to read the sutta, and then I will deliver what I'm sure the Buddha would have thought of as minimally instructive teachings, but I will try my best. The simile of the saw, and this is a saw as in cutting. The sutta begins, and the Buddha says, a monk, you can translate a monk as practitioner. When you hear monk, you can hear practitioner for us. The Buddha says, a monk may be ever so gentle, ever so mild-tempered, ever so calm, as long as the monk is not touched by disagreeable aspects of speech. But it is only when disagreeable aspects of speech touch the monk, then he can truly be known as gentle, mild-tempered, and calm. There are these five aspects of speech by which others may address you. Timely or untimely, true or false, affectionate or harsh, beneficial or unbeneficial, with a mind of goodwill or with a mind of internal hate. The Buddha continues, When you, O monks, are in the midst of unwholesome speech, you should train yourselves in the following way. Our minds will be unaffected, and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic to that person's welfare, with a mind of goodwill, and with no inner hate. We will keep pervading that person with an awareness imbued with goodwill, and beginning with that person, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, abundant, enlarged, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty tall order, right? Well, obviously, the Buddha thought so too. So in his inimitable way, he continues by offering some examples so that the monks can actually have a sense of how to apply this. And he does this in a very interesting way in this particular sutta. He basically goes right for the way in which humans mistake the intentions of others. Here's the first example. The Buddha says, Suppose a person comes along carrying a hoe and a basket, saying, I will make this great earth be without earth. And then the person digs here and there and scatters the soil here and there. What do you think, monks? Would this person actually make the great earth be without earth? And then all the monks together, they said, no. And the Buddha says, well, why is that? 
And then he answers the question. Because this great earth is deep and enormous, it can't easily be made to be without earth. That person would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. When I read this, I thought, this is why the Buddha was an amazing, amazing psychotherapist. He just goes right for the way a human mind mistakes the actuality of what a person can actually do. And in this case, he's saying, well, they can say they're going to come along and they're going to make the earth without earth, but basically it's impossible because the earth is just so huge. There's no way they can do that. And their own ignorance, their own inability to know their bounds, their own hubris, the sense in which they're mistaking what a human can actually do makes it so that the scattering of earth, the digging, even though it might be distressful for a monk to experience, in the end, the only thing that person is they're reaping their own exhaustion and disappointment because there's no way they can accomplish this silly thing they say they're going to do. Okay, so the Buddha gives another example. Suppose a person came along with paint saying, I will draw pictures in space. And then he asks the monks, okay, now what do you think? Would this person actually be able to draw pictures in space? And the monks think about it and they all say, no. And the Buddha says, why is that? And then he answers his own question. Because space is formless and without surface. It's not possible to draw pictures in space. So that person would reap only their share of weariness and disappointment. So again, you can see he's using these examples where the harm that a person says they're going to do is not possible actually to do. But because the person's mind is so lost and confused, they aren't even aware that what they're trying to accomplish cannot be accomplished. And therefore, the only harm that they actually cause is their own exhaustion and disappointment. So the Buddha gives another example. Suppose a person came along carrying a torch saying, I'm going to heat up the river Ganges and make it boil. And the Buddha asks the monks, now what do you think? Would this person actually be able to heat up the river Ganges and make it boil? And of course, the monks immediately say, no. And the Buddha says, why is that? And the monks say, because the river Ganges is deep and enormous. It's not easy to heat it up and make it boil. So that person would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. Similar to the last two examples, right? What they think they can do cannot be accomplished. Remember, you have to have a mind that's capable of recognizing what's true, that that's not accomplishable, in order to not get your knickers in a snit about this thing. If you are not in the wisdom of that can't be done, you could become very upset by someone saying they're going to do that after all. 
So then the Buddha decides he's really going to bring the point home. And this is where he goes back to the instruction that he gave earlier. He's saying, people can speak to you in all these different ways. Some of the ways will be disagreeable and some of the ways will be agreeable. And if people are speaking to you in an agreeable way, well, he basically says it's really easy to be gentle and mild-tempered and calm. And he's also saying, by the way, that is not actually the test of a practitioner because the test of a practitioner is, what are you going to bring to the table when somebody is disagreeable? And so his instruction, of course, uh, was long, but essentially what he said, no matter how disagreeable, the speech is that's delivered to you as a practitioner you have the capacity to remain pervading in an awareness an awareness that is so imbued with goodwill and with this immeasurable wisdom that basically no internal hatred would arise in a practitioner that's a big ask so the last example is an example which drives home the big ask. So here we go. And this is what I love about this sutta, is teachers of Vajrayana Buddhism down through the history of the Vajrayana will often use examples just like this. And you think to yourself, how can I even aspire to this? <laughs> this is a great sutta. It's an example of where this originally came from. It originally came from the historical Buddha. So here we go. The big ask, the Buddha says, even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, any one of you that would let their heart get angered would not be doing my bidding. Even then... You should train yourselves in the following way. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain compassionate with a mind of goodwill, with no inner hate. We will keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill. And beginning with them, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill abundant, enlarged, immeasurable, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how you should train yourself. If you attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the saw, do you see any aspects of speech, slight or gross, that you could not endure? And the monks really took a moment, I'm sure, to think about it. And they said, no, blessed one. And then the Buddha concluded with this. Then attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the saw. That will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. So maybe you can imagine why <laughs> after I finished reading this particular sutta, I thought, okay, this, this is daring. How do I teach on such a big ask? You're being sawed limb by limb. And in that sawing, 
in that act of breaking apart your body, ending your life, even in that, the Buddha is saying, as a practitioner, your heart will not be angered. You will remain unaffected and not have evil thoughts or speak evil words toward those who are doing the sign. You will remain compassionate and the mind clear with goodwill, keeping one thing in mind, which is awareness is immeasurable and the nature of who you actually are in that moment when your body is being sawed is pure awareness, the basic space of emptiness and the lucidity of mind, which cannot be touched, which is beyond being sawed. And the compassionate aspect of this is the clarity and the willingness to recognize the dreamlike nature of all phenomena, meaning all phenomena is inseparable and empty of any separate self-existence or solidity. If that is what you have in your mind, it is entirely possible to have the mind filled with the bodhicitta, total, complete recognition of human suffering and the nature of human suffering and to wish the two people on either end of that two-handled saw freedom from their suffering while they are cutting you apart and ending your life. Wow. So I thought to myself, well, now what do I say to them? How does one accomplish the depth of understanding such virtuous conduct requires? It's really a big ask by the Buddha. There's two ways to go about this. There's a shorthand and there's a longhand way. The shorthand actually is a very short paragraph from another sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, it's number 140, and it's a very small part of it, uh, where the Buddha actually talks about what he calls the four determinations. So a determination is something that a practitioner determines to practice. It's like a commitment. And the four determinations are as follows. One, a practitioner should not be negligent of discernment. That's the clarity of mind, the wisdom to know what is true. Number two, a practitioner should guard the truth. And this is very important. Once one has the discernment of what's true, there's a certain vigilance that the Buddha is asking practitioners to have around guarding the preciousness of that knowing, not to be swayed, not to be lost in doubt, to stay with the discernment of what is true. Number three, be devoted to relinquishment. This one is so important, particularly when you got those two people sawing you in limb by limb, right? There's a certain quality of relinquishing one is relinquishing the ego fixation around my life is so important. I must generate anger 
that my life is being ended. When we relinquish the importance of our existence in that self-special way, which is the bodhisattvic vow. And by the way, the Buddha was a bodhisattva for thousands of lifetimes before the lifetime when he actually managed to attain Buddhahood and enlightenment. So even though in the Theravada, the bodhisattvic path is not taught as much as it is the Mahayana path, it's a big part of it. And the Vajrayana path, it's a big part of it. These teachings are a big part of the way the Theravada was taught in terms of who the Buddha was and how come he was able to attain enlightenment. Relinquishment is a huge part of being a bodhisattva. One is continually relinquishing their own self-serving nature to the benefit of the awakening of all other beings. One is continually committing oneself. Everything one does in this existence is for the benefit of the awakening of all beings. And of course, all beings includes oneself. And then number four is, and train only for calm. I mean, try to imagine what it must take to have a mind that is tranquil in the midst of such disturbance as being sawed limb by limb. It's almost impossible to imagine, at least for me. I don't know, maybe some of you can imagine it. It's just that kind of tranquility that arises from the direct recognition of the immeasurable quality of pure awareness, of the basic space of emptiness, lucidity of awareness, those two things together. It is that direct experience that must be the ground from which such tranquility of mind arises. So when you put the four determinations together, what you get a recipe for clarity, wisdom, and skillful action. Be discerning. Guard what you know is true. Relinquish self-fixation and train for tranquility in the midst of disturbance. So that's the short recipe. The longer recipe would be, I think, prescribed by the Buddha in three fundamental internal commitments, which can be practiced. So obviously the first fundamental commitment is to right view or wise view. And as many of you know, this is the first of the Eightfold Noble Path. Difficult first because honestly, it's the whole ball of wax. So to put it first, the Buddha, I guess, had the intention to show you where you were going ultimately and to tell you you need to understand this to go anywhere on the Buddhist path. So right view includes the recognition of impermanence. All phenomena is of the nature to arise, exist, and pass away. There is no permanence whatsoever in any internal or external phenomena. Unsatisfactoriness, meaning all phenomena that arises internally or externally, 
has the nature of unsatisfactoriness in that it is impermanent. Nothing stays. So the inherent unsatisfactoriness is phenomena comes and goes. And then the third, of course, is not self, which is that relinquishment of self-fixation and the, the entire frame that the self is something that requires us to view it as separate from all other beings, from all other phenomena, this real solid thing inside of us, which we think is unchanging and we think is perfectly satisfactory, but of course is not because it's like everything else. It is continually changing. It has the quality of unsatisfactoriness and of course, it is not separate and solid. And then the second fundamental internal commitment is to right intention. And for me, this is a commitment that the Buddha makes really clear in the simile of the saw. It's a commitment to thoughts, affect, and actions that are imbued with equanimity. And that equanimity arises from the skillful application of the 10 paramis. And these are the 10 character traits of enlightened beings. Now, interestingly, you know, the Buddha was very famous for lists, but there's nowhere in the Pali Canon actually where the Buddha lists the 10 paramis in a list as here are the 10 paramis, you need to practice these. It's interesting that he doesn't do that because there are so many suttas in which he talks about the ten paramis, even though he doesn't give them as a a definitive list of here's the qualities you need in order to be an enlightened being. I mean, years ago, I remember Philip teaching on the paramis quite a bit. And I know that some of you have heard teachings on the paramis, but some of you may not have. If you are practicing these 10 paramis, you might actually be able to accomplish the kind of mind the Buddha is asking us to have in the simile of the saw. So I will just go through the list because tonight I don't have that much time, but I think I'm going to next week talk more about the difference between niceness and kindness and the paramis will come up quite a bit in that particular talk. The first one is generosity. I mean, I would have to say, if you're being sawed limb to limb and your mind is imbued with wisdom and compassion, that is the most generous thing you can possibly do for the person who is in the act of killing you, which is to not generate ill will and hatred toward them. That, to me, is the ultimate act of generosity. Because what you're doing is you're modeling something you would want them to have. And you might even think, you know, my last act on earth before I'm dead is to embody wisdom and compassion. And I might actually awaken a person who's sawing me up limb to limb. I might actually do that. That might be the last thing I do. And that would be very bodhisattvic. And of course, the second parami is virtue. And everything we've been talking about tonight is virtuous. We've already named the quality of renunciation earlier in the four 
determinations. Renunciation is a big part of what the Buddha is talking about in the simile of the saw. Wisdom goes without saying. Energy. Virya is very important when it comes to the paramis. And I think even though the Buddha didn't use the word zeal or energy, um, he's actually asking the monks to bring a certain quality of zeal to recognizing what's true. Seeing that a person who says they can boil the Ganges is just lost and to regard them as a human who's suffering and not hate them for that and not get lost in my own suffering about the fact that they're confused and lost. Patience is the next parami. Someone who comes to you and says they're going to rid the earth of earth itself, one needs to be patient with them because they're very confused. Truthfulness goes without saying. Determination, goodwill, and equanimity. These are the 10 paramis. And you can see that they are critically important for even beginning to imagine how a practitioner might even start to come close to enacting this wisdom that the Buddha is asking of us. So I know that was a lot. I think I might stop here so that I can open this up, answer some questions, or even hear some reflections, because this is a very challenging sutra. So I thought maybe some of you might want to unmute. Yeah, go for it. Lisa, I just want to back up from in the beginning. You talked about, with right speech, things to consider. And I wonder if I could ask you to review that list. As you know, the Buddha had teachings on wise speech. And they actually were very simple. When you engage in wise speech, you wanted to be, firstly, timely. You wanted to be kind. You wanted to be beneficial. And you want to make sure that you are speaking truth. So those are the four qualities of wise speech. It should be true. It should definitely be timely. It should be kind, and it should be beneficial. In the beginning of the sutta, he said that there are five ways in which people can address you, and those ways were timely or untimely, true or false, affectionate or harsh, beneficial or unbeneficial, with a mind of goodwill or with a mind of inner hate. Anyone else? Thank you for bringing up the paramis, and I just wanted to mention for anyone who's interested in further reading it, is Ajahn Suchito has a wonderful book, uh, Paramis, uh, Crossing Life's Floods, and it is available online. If you Google it, you can just download it for free. And I cannot tell you, I sent this book to lots of people. It is a wonderful, wonderful book to read and to go back and look at again. So I second the motion. Yes. Excellent book. I love this talk. Thank you. When I hear the parable of the saw, which I have heard before, it is a big ask and I can't wrap my mind around it. However, it comes to mind sometimes when I'm in the middle of a difficult conversation and I'm about to burst out with my anger and bad reaction. I tell myself, at least you're not being sawed limb by limb. And it puts it in perspective. So I can't quite get to where the Buddha is telling us to go, but I can think about the person in that story and think things could be worse. Just hold your words here. I love that. 
you kind of are there, okay? Huh. <laughs> and I'm saying that because there is a certain kind of discernment. So remember that list of determinations. You've discerned the nature of the experience you're having and you're guarding a certain kind of truth, something that's true for you. And you're willing to relinquish the ego fixation in the moment and then you are training for tranquility. So I would say you, in fact, are practicing the four determinations. What would you say? I would say you give a lot of credit because even though my mind goes there, I don't always act accordingly, but my mind is telling me how to act even though I don't always follow through with the um, perfect right speech in the moment. So there is no such thing as perfect anything because we are human. That is the saving grace in all of this, I would definitely say. You know, parami means perfection. <laughs> so what is being perfected in those 10 qualities, or if you are over in the Mahayana and the Vajrayana, it's only six of them. If you are training in the paramis, you are training in the perfection of awareness, because awareness is the ultimate refuge, you see. In awareness is the equanimity. And it's just that we fall out of awareness into ego fixation so readily and so easily without recognizing it that we get lost. This is why, you know, my teacher Minja Rinpoche, my teacher Ajahn Sumedho, my teacher Zoni Rinpoche, all three of them, you know, most of what they tell us as students is don't get lost. And what they mean is don't lose awareness. You're in awareness. The question is whether or not you can allow yourself to recognize, to discern the truth of ego fixation. And ultimately, that's what the simile of the saw is about. Who are you really? Recognize your nature, your true nature, which is the inseparability of awareness and emptiness, lucidity of mind, and the empty nature of all phenomena. That is who we really are and nothing else. And that can't be sawed. That is beyond being sawed. And this is the teaching, the ultimate teaching of the Buddha. I just want to thank you for this talk. I've always <laughs> sort of enjoyed this, this uh, parable, the simile in kind of a perverse way. Like, oh God, look at how extreme this is. <laughs> but you really unpacked it and looked at why we really need to approach it and what it means to hold this as some kind of weird ideal, you know, and really move toward it. And I think it was a wonderful job. So thank you. Well, I'm just curious, prior to this talk, what have you been taught about this sutta? I mean, how have other teachers approached this with you? I haven't been taught that much by other teachers. I've read it a lot, and I don't remember exactly. I've always just had this feeling, well, it really raises the bar on love your enemy. Well, I appreciate that very much. Okay. Well, this was such a joy, and uh, we shall continue next week. I look forward to it. Some of you were here last week. Some of you were not. It was a challenging talk last week. The Buddha asking a lot of us. 
in this simile of the saw. Though it was a complete talk in and of itself, it actually almost was a precursor talk to the talk that I am giving this evening. This is the talk I had started to write And then somehow I thought, nah, I really need to do something about the Buddhist sense of what it means to completely offer oneself up for the benefit of others, which I did do last week. This week I'm going to investigate the difference between nice and kind. If you Google the difference between nice and kind, It leads you to a whole bunch of commentary and stuff that uh, you might read by people in the coaching world. So it's sappy and silly. I tried not to be sappy and silly this evening because we have the Buddha and the Buddhist view to do this from. However, I'm going to start the talk tonight with a quote from a philosopher named Philo. He said, be kind For everyone you meet is carrying a great burden. And in the Buddhist world, the great burden obviously is complex. One of the characteristics of dukkha, that term that means unsatisfactoriness, is the rubbing up against feeling of existence itself for a human being. Even if you have a very easy life, and you've never had any difficulty, somehow every single human at one time or another comes up against this sense of existential dread of death. Even people with easy lives sometimes have difficulty with the impermanence of our existence. And we will talk a little bit about that later in the talk. So before I do the distinction between nice and kind, I would like to give you a bit of an expansion, maybe, in your frame of what those of us who are prescribing to a much more modern, embodied view of neuroscience these days. From this perspective, in order to be kind, one actually must embody what we call an inactive view. And inactivism is a theory in cognitive science that argues cognition actually arises through dynamic interaction between an organism and its environment. So this is different than the conceptual cognitive view, which neuroscience has pretty much held for the last, I'd say, 50 years, where most of what they look at is what happens in the brain. But these days, uh, there's all kinds of social neuroscience that is really pointing at more of a Buddhist view of what perception is actually all about, a less separable view. So the Buddha was very much an inactivist, Direct perception of embodied reality, according to him, was primary for waking up. A good example is when the Buddha famously pronounced, I am awake, as his answer to the question, who are you? And he proclaimed with that answer the necessity of embodied mind for achieving wise perception. The mind cannot be lost and off in its own little world. The mind must be fully engaged and embodied in awareness 
with bodily experience, awareness with the surround, a more inactive and engaged and embodied view. So in the modern world these days, inactivism and what we call embodied clinical reasoning basically adds this non-conceptual extra neural factors of body and environment to conceptual knowledge and neural activation. And that means that cognition itself is influenced by the body and emotions and intended actions constrain and bias cognition. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a minute. It also means that cognition is situated in the environment in which the organism resides. And here and now contexts also constrain and bias cognition. What we perceive is being constrained and it's also being influenced by the environment in which we're inhabiting. Thirdly, cognition extends out into the environment. And that means it's distributed between the being, its context, and the tools that the being is using. And so tools themselves actually become this extended perceptional apparatus with which we navigate our environment. So cognition is evolved for action and it supports adaptive behavior. And that's why when the Buddha said, I'm awake, he was saying, I'm fully presenced in my here and now experience. So my actions are wholesome. My actions are skillful. He can do what the Tibetan Buddhists call dynamic responsiveness, which means that an enlightened being is so fully present and inactive in their world there's no separation between the cognition and the world and so whatever comes into perception can be dynamically responded to from the view of an awakened mind it's so lovely for me you know at this point in my career as a clinician that embodied neuroscience is really catching up to what many of us in the buddhist psychology world have been talking about for a long time it's a really nice meeting here and it makes me feel very happy <clears throat> so let me give you a couple of interesting examples and this is going to have a lot of bearing on kindness and niceness so it turns out, we now know that knowledge is actually bound to social, cultural, and physical context. And that doesn't just mean how you take in knowledge, but it also means if you are having certain environmental experiences, it really can influence the way you perceive and feel. So here's a couple of interesting examples. A hill looks steeper when the person is wearing a backpack than when they're not. If you're looking at a hill and you're wearing a backpack, that hill looks more steep because you're wearing a backpack. So this is a great example of how your bodily experience is directly altering and biasing your sense of what that hike is going to be like only because you're wearing a backpack. Another interesting example is People view others as less friendly when they're holding a cold drink and more friendly when they're holding a warm drink. So if you are in your local cafe and you order a cold drink, you might be less likely to sit down and start talking to somebody you don't know 
because the cold drink is biasing your perception that the people in the coffee house are not quite as friendly as if you were holding a warm, steaming cup of cappuccino, for instance, and you turned around, and apparently everyone in the cafe might actually appear or feel friendlier to you. So this is backed up by lots of research, and I know it sounds crazy. And then there's one other thing that I just want to add here into the mix in terms of neuroscience that you, some of you may not be aware of. There's actually a difference between body image and body schema. And again, this is going to come in handy later on. Body image is a subjective assessment of a person's agency. What that means is the mind is coming up with a subjective self-assessment of how confidently a person can move through their world. So this is what we call a top-down view. Body schema, on the other hand, is actually a pre-reflective organismic sense of the being's agency. That is a bottom-up view. So apparently, prior to any self-awareness, meaning that little 10% that we're actually aware of as me, the rest of the 90% of our organism has a very specific idea about what it is and its abilities to move through its world. Some of the research shows that top-down body image subjective assessment of a person's ability to move through the world is not very accurate. But the bottom-up pre-reflective organismic sense of agency is very mundane. I can sit in a chair. The body knows I could get up. The body knows I could sit back down in this chair. It's completely confident of its ability to do that. That's bottom-up body schema. As opposed to body image, which might be a subjective assessment of, oh, you know, I'm not sure that I deserve to sit in that chair. Two very different things. Now I'm going to segue into starting to talk about niceness as opposed to kindness. There is a quote from the Dhammapada, which I'd like to start this part of the talk with. The Buddha said, better than a thousand meaningless statements is one meaningful word, which having been heard brings peace. So the reason I am starting with that particular quote from the Dhammapada is it's very illustrative of the difference between being nice and being kind. And I'll just start to flesh out the actual difference. Niceness involves pleasing or agreeable thoughts and actions. And in most cases, the nice person is trying to be agreeable to whoever else is there. But in actuality, the agreeability is based on the perceptions of the person who's choosing niceness. Though they may think the object of niceness is to please others. And this is very important. There is a mental concept about 
who the other people are and what the other people need that the person who's choosing niceness is using internally and applying a top-down image onto the people in the environment. So they're very much holding an internal view of who they're supposed to be based on an internal view of who they think the other people are. Alternatively, kindness is a sense of helpfulness and kindness is enacted through benevolent thoughts and actions. You can see how kindness has an other-centered view. It's not based on some internal concept. Kindness is based on a direct engagement with another in need and some kind of discriminating activity that is externally focused about what's happening outside and what can actually be provided from within. So kindness isn't always easy and kindness can actually be uncomfortable. And that's one of the big differences between kindness and niceness. The whole idea of being nice is to avoid the discomfort of dis-ease. For instance, the dis-ease of not being able to provide what another person needs or the discomfort of knowing you can provide it and then having to deal with your own sense of whether you want to provide it. So there's all kinds of discomforts that can show up with kindness, with a desire to be kind or commitment to behave in a kind way. Now I'll just go through kind of a bullet point differential. Niceness is pleasing, agreeable, and attracting. That is the entire purpose of niceness. And kindness is benevolent with the ability to disagree. So kindness actually does not require pleasing. It doesn't require agreeability. Niceness is disarming and it comes from a place of weakness. There's very little inner strength because inner strength is bolstered by presence in the way things are. And because niceness is anchored in some mental concept that is not necessarily engaged in what is really happening externally as well as internally, kindness, on the other hand, has a wholesomeness and a vitality. There's energy with kindness. Even if there's disagreeing, there's still a wholesome way in which a person can disagree with another human. Niceness is deceptive and it's also disingenuous. Why? Because it doesn't come from any kind of authenticity. The objective is to be pleasing and agreeable and attracting. Kindness, on the other hand, it has a genuine quality. We can be benevolent. We can even disagree with the tools of truth and genuineness. Niceness is indifferent and it is dissociated. So the indifference is generally an ambivalence to the experience of pain. 
This one's interesting because I think most people think, well, of course, somebody who's being nice is avoiding pain, which means they're not ambivalent about it. But ambivalence allows humans to do something that is not beneficial, but they still think it's beneficial. That's the whole use of indifference. If you're indifferent to something, then you can behave unskillfully, but you can convince yourself that it's not a problem. And dissociation has a lot to do with a person's ability to engage in that kind of conduct. Kindness, on the other hand, is caring. And in order to be caring, a person has to be embodied. This has a lot to do with the way the brain does empathy. Many of you have heard me say this before, for, but for anybody who hasn't, empathy is tied up with the insula, which is right in the center of the brain, and it is the part of the brain that processes physical pain and social-emotional pain. In order for a human to have empathy, you know, my favorite example, which some of you may have heard me use because it's so simple, you see somebody stub their toe. Everybody stubbed their toe at one time or another. So when you see someone stub their toe, you, the mirror neurons in your brain are basically simulating the actual experience of stubbing your toe. And so your immediate response is, ah, oh, your brain is making you feel that physical pain and anguish. And that's what empathy is. It's the ability to know directly the suffering of another. Caring kindness, compassion, they all have empathy at the start. You can't stay in the empathic brain network. You have to leave there because if you get lost in pain, you can't be of help to anyone and you really can't be caring either. But you have to have that initial direct knowing, oh, there's something happening here that I can be of help with. And that requires a person to be embodied. You know, that ow embodies you. You actually feel the pain. So you can't really be indifferent and dissociated and have empathy at the same time. Niceness, as you can imagine from what I've said already, is avoidant and it's also fearful. So fearful is an interesting word. Fear is an actual human experience. Like a tiger walks in, Long before your conscious awareness knows there's a tiger in the room, the rest of your body has already known there's a tiger in the room 300 milliseconds before, and it's already marshaled everything it needs to get you away from a tiger. That's fear. Fearfulness is like a narrative. It's like a story. And again, niceness has everything to do with being fixated on an internal story that often comes from constructs and ideas about how one needs to be pleasing and agreeable and attracting in order to not face some kind of response that's going to bring some kind of fear response in them. Someone who's being nice is not necessarily perceiving what's on the other side. This is just an assumption that they're probably applying globally to everything. Kindness, on the other hand, is engaging and fearless. And this is why some of you may have heard the term fierce compassion. And there's this quality of fearlessness about kindness and compassion where you're so engaged with what's really happening that the fearlessness 
is just inherent in the knowing. Niceness is self-absorbed and it's also self-obsessed. And I say this only because the entire project of being nice arises from fixation on a self-narrative about oneself and one's world that's so distorted. A person feels they have to be nice no matter what. Kindness, on the other hand, is inclusive, it's embracing, and it's other-centered. It's entirely possible to disagree with someone and still do it with an inclusive, embracing, and other-centered view. Niceness is ingratiating, and kindness is responsive. There's that quality of dynamic responsiveness. Whatever is showing up, the awakened being knows they can bring to the table what's necessary, what's appropriate in any given moment, no matter what's arising. And we saw that last week in the simile of the saw. And then lastly, niceness is unwitting and it's thoughtless. And kindness is intentional and thoughtful. The intentionality and the thoughtfulness is a reflection of the qualities of an embodied mind. A mind that is not dissociated, it's not lost, it's not avoidant, it's not fearful, it is not lost in some story. There's a quality of grounding, intentionality, in being present with oneself, with who else is there, and a thoughtfulness about the engagement itself. So hopefully, by going through this differential, you can all get a good sense of the difference between niceness and kindness. If a mind is fixated on a false narrative of self and world, that gives rise to unvirtuous conduct. And distorted speech will arise from that mind and lead to afflictive mind states and actions like cold-heartedness, paranoia, blaming, shaming, or incessant doubt. As we landed last week toward the end of the talk, we're landing in the same place, which is practicing the paramis, the perfections. Because the paramis really are key to recognizing this kind of ignorance and internal distortion and then implementing in a moment where you can see, you can feel, you can know that you're lost in some distorted internal story. You can remember the paramis themselves and implement their intent. I think it's important to go through the paramis from this perspective. Now that we've done the differential, I think maybe you can see how the list, benevolence, wholesomeness, vitality, honesty, genuineness, care, embodiment, engagement, fearlessness, inclusivity, embracing other-centeredness, responsiveness, intentionality, and thoughtfulness. Like This is the list under kindness, of the qualities of kindness. And you'll see, it's almost exactly that list. It is so cool. The first parami is the parami of generosity, of giving of oneself. And kindness really has as its foundation a commitment to generosity, of giving of oneself. Niceness is selfish. There's no giving of oneself in niceness. It's just facade, often 
just a method for protection from something the person doesn't need to be protected from in the first place, but it feels very real because distortion feels real in the mind. This first parami, generosity, is the basis of an impulse to be kind. The second parami, the parami of virtue or sila, this parami, I feel, is so important with kindness. The list of qualities of kindness, everything on that list is a virtuous either emotion or some kind of virtuous conduct. Virtue is critical in the Buddhist path. Enacting a kind of propriety around conduct is, I think, almost the cornerstone of why the Buddha taught anything. Whether it's proper conduct of mind or proper conduct of behavior, it doesn't matter. Virtue is the core of kindness. Third parami, renunciation. This one is so critical. Even though I have been very hard on niceness tonight, I think we can all admit to having moments in our lives when we've chosen niceness over kindness. For whatever reason, we've chosen to just please, we've chosen to be agreeable rather than be honest and bring up some kind of disagreement with someone. I think we can all say we've had moments where we've chosen niceness. I know I can definitely say it throughout my life. And renunciation is critical for enacting kindness because it's so easy to be nice. The practice of this parami is literally renouncing the habit of niceness renouncing the habit of internal fixation, renouncing the habit of mindless being lost in distorted narratives about self and world. There's this drive for the next parami, which is wisdom and discernment. You just can't get to wisdom and discernment if you can't renounce ignorance and false view. No matter how much you say you're wise, if you can't recognize when you're lost and you're not wise and renounce that and then make the effort to discern, you just don't get anywhere. And kindness and compassion in the Buddhist tradition require wisdom. There is no kindness or compassion without wisdom. And we know this from that beautiful saying, the two wings of the bird of enlightenment are wisdom and compassion. And without both, the bird of enlightenment cannot fly. Energy, zeal. This is the fifth parami. This is the fifth parami. There's something about niceness. It doesn't have a lot of vigor and energy and zeal behind it. There's no aliveness in niceness. It's like the entire person has left the engagement, and so the energy is gone. Now, that doesn't mean that a person who is lost in this kind of distorted mentation is not going to be using a lot of energy to avoid being engaged, other-centered, and responsive. 
and maybe disagree. It takes a lot of energy to not go there if you are telling yourself it's a bad place to go. But that's not virya. Virya is this energy of engagement and it takes effort to be engaged and it takes vigor and diligence to stay engaged. And that's the quality that one needs to be kind. You have to stay engaged in order to be kind because as I said, it's often not easy to be kind. The next parami, patience and tolerance and endurance. This one I think is critical for kindness. <laughs> it takes a lot of patience and endurance to be kind, particularly when you're in the presence of people who may be lost in ignorance and may be very distorted. It's really hard to maintain that commitment to wholesomeness and caring and embodiment when you're in a situation that is irritating and difficult and seems impossible. The next parami, truthfulness and honesty, are hard because it takes patience and tolerance to be truthful and honest, not just with others, but frankly with ourselves. Sometimes the honesty, the information we need to impart is going to be hard for everyone. And that's why the parami of determination and resolution are important for kindness. Because often when you're kind, you're looking for a way to come together. I love the paramis because they just build on each other. The next parami is friendliness and goodwill and kindness itself. It's metta. It's the loving kindness. The last parami is equanimity and serenity. Equanimity and serenity will never arise from niceness. A person can feel very serene when they're being nice, but it's a delusion. There's nothing equanimous about niceness. Equanimity only arises from kindness because in order to have equanimity, one must be embodying all the other paramis. I don't know if this was beneficial <laughs> for all of you. I feel like it was beneficial for me, both as a clinician and also a Buddhist teacher, to spend some time trying to consider uh, what is kindness and what is the difference and why is it that we all have difficulty being kind and often just choose niceness over kindness. That went very fast tonight. Anybody want to ask anything, you can just unmute yourself or if you have a comment you want to make. I have two questions. I'd love to hear an example of um, a situation in which you can choose either kindness or niceness, what that would look like. Well, why don't you give me a situation? Because pretty much every situation is that. <laughs> why can't niceness accompany kindness? Why can't you be kind and nice at the same time? You can't because kindness is authentic. Niceness has no authenticity about it. It is a cultural construct taught to women because through the history of patriarchy, we basically have been objects that men have owned and have had no agency whatsoever and have no power. And therefore, women had to come up with ways to manipulate. Be nice is what's taught to women. Don't put your own thoughts forward. Don't be disagreeable. Make sure that you don't make waves. It has no validity. Niceness does not exist in the Buddhist teachings, just so you know. 
Don't you have a choice in how you express that kindness? You can be harsh with it or nice with it? So that's why I gave the talk last week. Wholesome conduct and wholesome speech is not nice. It's kind. And it comes from all of the qualities of the paramis. It's equanimous. It comes from a clear mind that is embodied in its reality and knows itself and its world as it is. So there is no place for niceness in wisdom or compassion. I have a friend who's very troubled, and I was speaking with her the other day. For me, speaking with a person who's troubled that I care about, uh, patience and endurance, and there's pain. I have to deal with mm -hmm. my pain when I listen to her. And mm -hmm. I wanted to leave okay. because it was so painful. But I love this person. Wow. And I said to myself, don't you dare. You Aww. have to have patience and endurance. Made that choice. And that's why I want to say niceness. I doubt that there's any pain involved. Mm. Kindness, there, there can be suffering. You totally got the talk tonight. Wow. And let me say what a bodhisattva you are. And that's the whole key to the bodhisattvic intent. You understand the nature of suffering. And so there's no problem being fully in it, even though it may be difficult. Being a bodhisattva, that means you should also be able to apply compassion and kindness to yourself because you are a being who is deserving of it in those moments with your friend. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to today's show. To get in touch, please visit groundlessground.com. Let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on the Groundless Ground.